Church Denver. Would everyone give a hand to welcome Dr. Craig Blomberg to the stage. And as he's making his way up, Dr. Blomberg was one of my professors when I was in seminary, and I was trying to decide where to go. I knew God had called me to be a pastor, but I had gone to Colorado State, so they didn't teach me anything about the Bible there. In fact, sometimes the opposite of what the Bible says. But I was like, I got to learn something. And I talked with one of my friends who's a pastor, and I said, where should I go? He's like, well, what, what authors have you read? And I was like, nothing. Like, I got nothing. But I had read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And if you've read that book or seen the Netflix movie, that you know that Dr. Craig Blomberg is one of the people interviewed in that book. And I was like, I've read that book. I want to go where he is, which is Denver Seminary. So I went to Denver Seminary to get my master's degree and learned, took every class I could from Dr. Blomberg. Even when I couldn't take, I still like read all the books and tried to get all the lecture notes from him on the parables, which the women's Bible study is covering parables on Monday nights. And I gave him the book. He has a great book. But Dr. Blomberg has written or edited over 20 books, and he's, he's brilliant, taught me so much about Greek, about the Bible, and I'm so appreciative of it, and I think that you guys are going to learn a lot as well. Um, today is different than a normal sermon, and that's good, okay? We're going to learn a lot today, and if you look, if you're here in person, underneath your seat is a page of notes, and there's some notes that are the outline for the, the talk that you're going to get today. There should be a pen as well, or you can use the YouVersion Bible app. We have that same outline in our Rise Church Denver event if you want to see it there and save it there on your phone. But you should use it. You should take some notes, study, focus, okay? Jesus tells us to love the Lord your God with all your mind, okay? So you got to think if you want to love God, okay? And then I, I do want to say this. He's going to give us a great talk on why we can rely on and trust the Gospels, but tonight we're going to have him back for a special seminar, two hours, about how we got the Bible, how we got the canon, the, the, the books that we have in the Bible. Why do we have these books and not others? So if you ever wondered about that, come back tonight, because not only we will do that, but we also have a Q&A time where you can try to stump him with your hardest questions. And, and I know some of you are like, oh, shoot, I can't make it tonight. I can watch online. We are going to stream it online. We'll record it, and we'll also allow it. If you do have questions online, you can type them in as well. So we'll have that figured out for tonight as well. Um, and I do want to say this. Um, I read uh, one of his earlier books that this is based on historical reliability of the Gospels. This is an even longer one, the historical reliability of the New Testament. Okay, It's got everything in there, why you can rely on the New Testament. I'm giving this away tonight. So if you come in person tonight, you can enter for a chance to win this amazing book. So without further ado, I'm going to tur turn it over to Dr. Craig Blomberg, um, who got his Ph.D. from the University of Aberdeen. Uh, was a professor at Denver Seminary since 1994. He just retired, so now he's the pastor or professor emeritus, and now there's a, a chair named after him, okay? You know you're important when someone's job title is named after you, okay? That's the Craig Blomberg chair of whatever, New Testament, right, that, that jo Joey Dodson has now. But um, let's welcome Dr. Blomberg to speak today. Thank you, Dr. Matt Wolf. Actually, I've been around longer than you said. It was 1986. Ancient history. I remember this airport called Stapleton. <laughs> Apparently, this building was a hangar once. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you. Good to see you this morning. How are you? Yeah, so you saw the, the trailer or the teaser or the 24-second video, whatever you want to call it. There are a lot of people in our world that uh, are not impressed with the Bible. Most of them have never read it. Um, 
it's all by word of mouth. Um, they have heard that there are contradictions. They've heard that it hasn't been copied accurately, that it hasn't been translated accurately. Um, now, if you are one of these people that uh, I tend to find more of on the south side of town, just because of the nature of certain suburbs that will remain nameless, um, who tries to create a giant Christian cloister so that you never have to do any of your favorite activities in life with non-Christians, um, then maybe you're like the person who once coined the phrase, uh, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me, which is exemplary faith, but gets you absolutely nowhere when you talk to somebody who doesn't think God said it. <laughs> and so... Um, what we want to do this morning, rapid fire, probably will feel like drinking from a fire hose, is uh, to look at 12 reasons, wearing a historian's hat, not necessarily a Christian believer's hat, that a lot of people uh, in the academy, a lot of people have studied this very uh, thoughtfully and seriously, We'll say, if you take the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic Gospels because you can make a synopsis, put them in parallel columns. They're more alike than different. When you see things that they agree on, there's a pretty good chance that Jesus really did or said these things. Now, there are debates about miracles because we have debates about the supernatural. But um, there are good reasons you tend not to uh, hear about them as much. They're not as much in the news because what makes news? That which is unusual, <laughs> which is different, maybe evil, maybe um, sexy, maybe attractive, maybe avant-garde, but well, Joe Smith just came up with an amazing find to reinforce belief in... No, 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 not reinforcing belief. That's not news. <laughs> so we have to do it here. We have to start, as a good historian would do, and ask the question of textual reliability. Do we have any idea what the original documents even just the four Gospels said. And what are we talking about when we're talking about original Gospels? We've got some pictures. They're not the best in the world. But you can see um, a little fragment from what may come from about the year 125, give or take some, uh, of a verse or three in broken form from the Gospel of John, oldest fragment of any part of the New Testament that we have. You can see uh, from the end of the second century, um, in the next slide, a uh, page out of uh, what's a pretty well intact Gospel. You can see written in all capital Greek letters. If you were in a sorority or fraternity in college, you might recognize your letters there somewhere. Um, 
And then over time, Greek developed the uh, lowercase writing. So we've got another page that has uh, some of that uh, script as well. What do you not see <laughs> on these slides? <laughs> there's no chapters and verses. There's no punctuation. There's no um, study notes. There are no maps, there's no charts, no paragraph division, um, no notes from your favorite preacher. Um, yeah, all that gets added at different points in the history, but the actual words were there. And as I put on the notes, we have over 5,400 ancient Greek manuscripts from a few verses to an entire New Testament. And these tended to last. These tended to be taken good care of. One uh, researcher estimates that the average manuscript continued to be used for about 150 years. So um, documents written in the first century uh, were still being used. And we have ancient Christian testimony to that fact that they were still being used at the end of the second century. From where these documents were found, from the circumstances of, of their discovery, we don't think we have any of the actual original documents. But it's not impossible that we have some copies of those original documents, and it's very likely that we have copies of copies, which is very different from the claims you sometimes hear that, well, they wore out like paperbacks every 10 years, so all we have are copies of 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 copies. No, I'm not at the Denver Zoo. One of my daughter's favorite animals was the okapi. Um, but... Uh, Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> Make sure you're still awake out there. Less than 1% of the New Testament <clears throat> is textually uncertain to any significant degree, and we can read in our footnotes. Oh, yeah, that means you have to read your footnotes um, and find out where they are if you read only on your phone because um, they are there, but you have to know how to find them. And no doctrine or practice of Christianity depends solely on some disputed text. <clears throat> but this first point occasionally gets overestimated. I, I have heard Christians say, yeah, I mean, how can you not believe that the Gospels are true with over 5,000 manuscripts? The same way that if somebody told me that J.K. Rowling actually wrote in the 8th century and before the printing press and we had 5,000 copies of Harry Potter, it wouldn't make Harry Potter true. It would just mean we knew what Harry Potter said. <laughs> Can't confuse those two things. But once we have reason to believe that uh, we have a reliable account, we can reconstruct what the Gospels 
most likely originally said, then we can go on to the arguments about their historical nature. And a good historian starts with the next two points and asks questions like, can we figure out who the authors were? And when did they write? So we have a, a slide that um, reminds us or introduces to us for the first time that uh, Mark uh, was John Mark, who appears in the book of Acts, who traveled with the apostle Paul, um, later was companion of Peter, got a lot of his information for his gospel from Peter. Luke was Paul's beloved physician, to use the old-fashioned language, the King James Version. Luke's, uh, today I suppose you'd say favorite doctor, um, companion of Paul, um, interviewed all kinds of people in Israel while Paul was in prison there. Matthew, one of the 12 apostles, um, but a tax collector believed to have sold out to the Roman occupying forces, um, a traitor. And so none of these three would have been natural people to choose if you were making up something largely fictitious and just wanting to ascribe it to a well-known authority. Now, John, one of the three inner core of Jesus' apostles, could have been such a person, um, but not so much the first three. It gets more complicated when we discover that for the last 250 years or so, there has been a fair amount of doubt in scholarly circles whether the Gospels were written by the people that the church had unanimously ascribed them to. But what's being said is need, needs not be as troublesome as it might be to some who first hear that because they're dating the books a little bit later and therefore they're saying probably not during these men's lifetimes, and yet someone who was a follower or discipled by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, which is why those names got into the early tradition. When we look at the question of dating, on the next slide, is there any way you can get those in the back like we did the first service too so I don't have to turn around and see what's up there? If not, that's okay. Um, then uh, we see there's a disagreement, again, in terms of uh, a more conservative set of dates, a more liberal set of dates. But what's fascinating is what they all pretty much agree on. We're looking at first century writings. Most people would date Christ's crucifixion to AD 30, so we're looking at documents within 30 to 60 years of the events that they describe. And somebody says, gosh, I don't know if the news could accurately remember something 30 to 60 minutes today. Um, <laughs> but that's because we live in a print-based culture, even when it's fake print. Um, it can easily disappear from your screen if you hit the wrong button. Um, the ancients lived in oral cultures where things were passed on by word of mouth, where the majority of people were unable to read or write, which doesn't mean they were dumb. It just means they had a different form of communication and memory. And 
as we'll see in, in a moment, their abilities at memorizing shows that they certainly weren't dumb. When we compare a 30 to 60 year period with uh, the gap between the life of Alexander the Great, who died in 323 BC, and the two most reliable and detailed biographies we have of him still in existence that come from the late first and early second century AD, and where they agree, most historians would say there's good reason to think they're reliable, and that's a period of over 400 years, then the Gospels look quite good in comparison. But am I assuming what I shouldn't have? Am I simply taking at face value that the Gospel writers wanted to produce something historical and biographical with a degree of accuracy? Well, why wouldn't they? Next slide gives two very common reasons people have given to that. Sure seems like many people throughout the pages of the New Testament believe that Christ might return in their day, in their lifetimes even. And who bothers to write a book about the history of your movement if you know you're going to go to be with the Lord soon? <laughs> kind of pointless. <laughs> Waste of time. Got better things, more urgent things to be doing. And yet it's interesting, there's no statement in the New Testament that anyone claimed to know with 100% certainty the timing of Jesus' return. In fact, he even said no one could know that fact. We know of a Jewish sect called the Essenes who lived on the shores of the Dead Sea and the material they produced has become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls in which they describe their their monastic community and its practices. And from their literature, we can reconstruct about a 250-year history of their movement, even though throughout it they lived in the lively hope that each generation could be the end, interesting parallel to early Christianity. But it doesn't have to restrict all historical motives. More significantly, there are people that say, but the Gospels are theological, or we might say ideological. They, they've got a, a bias that could very easily make them skew the evidence. Yeah, it's possible. But it's not necessary. Some ideologies, by their very nature, require you to reconstruct the past as accurately as possible. After World War II, all kinds of Jewish historians committed to keeping the memories of those who had perished in the Holocaust alive, meticulously chronicling details of their lives and deaths, as if they could anticipate that 50 to 75 years later there would be people who paid no attention to the evidence and claimed that the Holocaust was overblown or that it never happened. They did not want 
such atrocities to happen to their people or to anyone again. And that bias, <laughs> that ideology, meant they had to tell the otherwise very depressing story of that period of time as accurately as possible. Christians were much more like that in the first century, fighting an uphill battle against those who would say, no, Jesus never said that. No, he didn't work miracles. Miracles are impossible. No, he couldn't have been raised from the dead. And, and so if they were found falsifying information uh, where it could be checked, um, this would have made their job that much harder. There, there's reason ahead of time to suspect that they would have wanted to preserve accurate history. But could they have done so? Some of us are old enough. <laughs> A few of us. It's very young and exciting looking crowd. A few of us are old enough to say, there's some stuff about growing up I don't remember anymore. <laughs> what about the disciples, especially when we get to closer to 60 rather than 30 years after the events described. But what's interesting is that these oral cultures in the ancient Mediterranean world meticulously cultivated the art of memorization. This was the one method in Jewish, Greek, and Roman schools. Memorize the text that you're studying, and then you're qualified to discuss it. Until you've got it committed to memory, you might accidentally misrepresent it. Nobody's ever done that in the modern world. Um, I'm actually glad that education has broadened out since then. But... Um, Rabbis, for example, often had large portions of the Old Testament committed to memory. You go, nobody could do that. Yeah, they could. There are accounts of them having done, and even in our print-based culture, I have permission from my two grown daughters to tell this story. When they were teenagers, they had the words and music to their four favorite CDs, Man of La Mancha, Les Mis, Fan of the Phantom of the Opera, and the Collected Works of Veggie Tales, <laughs> committed to memory. That's a lot of words and music. Music actually helps remembering words, and people used to chant the Hebrew scriptures and have a beat and have rhythm and, and meter. And not once, my girls confirmed this when I asked them, not once did they sit down with the words to actually memorize anything. How did they do it? <laughs> Repetition. And when they both left home and were gone and grown, I had to hide those CDs for about four years so no one would be tempted to play them. I, I really did like the music, but we just heard them so many thousands, well, at least hundreds of times that 
I needed a break. <laughs> and if that can happen in our modern world, it certainly could happen without so many of our modern distractions in the ancient world. Bart Ehrman likes to say, the little clip before I came up here mentioned uh, the child's game of telephone. Take a, a somewhat complicated sentence, whisper it to a group of grade school kids. We'll start with one person privately, have them whisper it privately to the next person. Go around the group and the last one says what he or she thought they heard and we all laugh because it's gotten garbled. The problem is you couldn't possibly pick an example more unlike the way people passed things on by word of mouth in the ancient world. When they did it out loud, in groups, publicly, with checks and balances, um, practiced it, said it over and over again. I mean, stop and think how many times the disciples had heard Jesus' teachings including something like the Sermon on the Mount, which we say, how could you ever memorize that? Gospel of Matthew says, Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages of Galilee. There were over 200 of them. And then he sent the 12 out to replicate his mission. Before Jesus even died, the disciples had probably heard and practiced saying, what we read in the Sermon on the Mount literally several hundred times. Well, that's very different than a child's game of telephone. A gospel, less than 20,000 words? That was literally child's play, but a different kind. We also have to notice that the differences among the gospels closely match the patterns of ancient storytelling. We've got a chart that shows what scholars have pretty much come to agree on is the, the way um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were related at a literary level. goes back to an Englishman who wrote just about exactly 100 years ago by the name of B.H. Streeter. Mark most likely first. Matthew and Luke considerably expanding the number of verses. That's what BV stands for. Um, but reproducing most of what's in Mark, adding to it, adding a lot of teachings and parables and short sayings of Jesus, about 235 verses worth that uh, are not in Mark but common to Matthew and Luke, which uh, when 19th century German scholars were paying close attention to it, they speculated that maybe those Two authors drew on a common source, and the German word for source, quella, starts with a Q, so they called it Q. And without thinking that 150, 75 years later, there'd be a more famous Q that was part of James Bond, and people would think, oh, this is mysterious, something, just a boring word for source. And, and M&L, I mean, that's really mysterious and creative uh, stuff unique to Matthew and Luke. And even in German, the words for Matthias and Lucas start with M&L. So, yeah, no mystery here, rats. But then there are other factors that we have to bring into play. Studies of 
how pre-literate or semi-literate, out-of-the-way communities, towns, villages, even to this day, although they're shrinking rapidly in an internet world, um, preserve the epic sagas of their peoples where designated individuals became authorized spokesmen to, on various special occasions, tell a part of the story. And they felt free to use longer or smaller parts depending on the context or to abbreviate, be selective, uh, put in their own words, somebody else's words, um, whatever was most relevant to that particular setting. Flexible transmission, but with fixed limits. And there are people even more recently who have studied what is called social memory. What happens when a group of people intentionally decide that they want to emphasize part of their story on a regular basis? When we first moved to Denver, we were part of a church that... Uh, has some very unique features at, at its inception when it became a church plant. And the founding pastor, wanting to really get the people out of the building, um, said, we, we want to have a heart for the city. And he helped to inspire countless individuals who started city ministries that are still with us in Denver to this day. Um, Things like uh, Open Door Fellowship and Mile High Ministries and Neighborhood Ministries and the Inner City Health Center and Alternative Pregnancy Centers and, and on and on. And, and he did so by um, getting permission from church leaders to abolish every committee except the deacon board. He said, we don't want people coming to church more than once a week if we can help it. Um, we want them out in the community doing stuff. And that story got retold often enough that even though for reasons unrelated to any of that, we found ourselves elsewhere in 1991 and, and the church itself has changed over the years, I can still tell that story because I heard it so often. And other people were there that if I got something wrong, they could correct me. And I just told you a tiny part of the story. So yes... I think we have good reason to say not only did the first Christians want to preserve accurate history, they were in a position to be able to do so. But how about turning to their words? How about reading the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, um, which I believe we have on a slide, where Luke writes, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is the kind of opening preface that you find in other ancient Jewish, Greek, and Roman histories. You don't find something like this in ancient novels or works of fiction. In fact, the idea of a historical novel that we're familiar with in our world 
where, where you take real people and real places but then make up stories about them wasn't really even a known literary genre in the ancient world. And, and the closest you ever came to it was when people would deliberately introduce a, a, a historical anachronism, something that they knew their readers would find out of place. Like there's a, a wonderful 2nd century BC story about a woman named Judith who's a, a heroine who acts like she's going to seduce the foreign king but winds up cutting off his head instead and uh, rescues the armies of Israel. It's a great story, but in the first chapter you read that Israel was being besieged by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and that's the wrong place and it's the wrong time by more than four centuries. But that was the way the author said, this isn't serious history. This is, this is a fun story to teach a theological point. Obey the law and God will bless you. Can we do even more? Positively, we've been debunking some, some reasons skeptics have promoted for rejecting the gospel reliability. What about the fact that there are difficult sayings, hard sayings in the gospels that you wouldn't have expected would appear there if people felt free to, to leave things out like, Whoever does not hate father and mother cannot be my disciple. How many of you have obeyed that? No, 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 I, I, I won't ask that question. No one knows the time of the return of the Son of Man. Not even the Son. Jesus in the voluntarily adopted limits of his incarnation didn't know. Well, that's a little embarrassing. We can do the theological gymnastics to explain it, but wouldn't it have been easier if the gospel writers had just left it out, and yet they apparently didn't feel free to do so? Or what about the topics you would have expected to find something in the gospels on if people sensed that God was speaking to them in the early decades of their movement and the risen Lord was still Jesus, so they could attribute it to Jesus, put it in the Gospels. Why do we find nothing about circumcision? You say, why would you want to know? Um, well, have a little historical imagination. You're a first century Greek or Roman in a world where only Jews circumcised baby boys. And you are interested in this Christian message, but there are some people going around saying, and yes, we want you to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you also have to obey all the laws of Moses, and for men, that includes circumcision. In a world with some very uh, precise and high-tech surgical instruments, but no anesthesia. I might think twice three times, six times about that. Why not just give Jesus' opinion and avoid Acts 15 and the whole council that had to solve that debate? Apparently because nobody knew it. Nobody knew that he had said anything on it. 
and they didn't feel free to make it up and put it in. You can make the same argument with what did Jesus think about speaking in tongues that threatened to blow the church at Corinth wide open. Some people, however, just want to know what is it that the non-Christian writers confirmed since Christians at least might have been biased. They could have skewed the evidence. Let's go to people who wouldn't have skewed the evidence. So non-Christians are never biased. Only Christians can, well... Okay, humor that argument, and let's do it. And we discover that Jewish writers like Josephus, the encyclopedic-sized collection of traditions called the Talmud, um, Thales, Lucian, Mara ben Serapion, out of the Greek world, Suetonius, Tacitus, Pliny, out of the Roman world, put together everything they said in the earliest centuries of the Christian movement, and you get a composite that reads something like this. There was a man named Jesus who was a self-styled Jewish rabbi who very much existed in the first third of the first century. He was born out of wedlock. He, uh, his ministry intersected with that of a man named John who baptized people for the repentance of sins. He had a brother by the name of James. As an adult, he went around Israel and gathered disciples. Five of them are named. Some of the names are a little garbled, but we can reconstruct who they were probably. Um, he wrought amazing signs, wonders, apparent reference to his miracles. He regularly taught interpretations of the Jewish law that ran afoul of the authorities. He was eventually crucified under Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, which narrows things to 26 to 36 AD. And yet, despite that, was believed to have been seen, raised from the dead, believed to be the Messiah as a result, and his followers gathered weekly and sang hymns to him as if he were a god. Yeah, there's more than enough evidence to debunk these websites that say Jesus never existed. But someone might say that's still not a lot of information, and, and it isn't, but then nobody knew back then that this tiny, beleaguered, persecuted sect would one day turn into the world's largest and most influential religion. It's about the amount of press you would have expected in those days. There are other people who just want rock-solid evidence, <laughs> the evidence of the rocks, of archaeology. And if we had time, we could talk about the discoveries that have been found just in, in the last 75 years or less, discoveries like the pools of Bethesda and Siloam in Jerusalem or an inscription that Pilate really was the prefect of Judea during the reign of Tiberius Caesar or a Jewish man named Johannes' a bone box where we found a, a bone, an ankle bone attached to a nail to for the first time, verify that people were not only nailed in the wrists, but also in the ankles, like 
Jesus was. And, and the Jesus boat, <laughs> well, actually, nobody knows whose boat it was, but 1986, they dredged up a first century boat, took amazing care to reconstruct this thing. You can go to a museum by the shores of Galilee and, and pay some money to see it today. And the Israeli authorities knew they'd get far more tourists if they called it the Jesus boat. But it is big enough for 13 small people like Jesus and his apostles. Didn't know they had them that big. What else is on the list? James uh, Bonebox, first century home in Nazareth, Caiaphas' tomb, much, much more. Whole books on biblical archaeology. No, that will never confirm that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's this kingdom of heaven, um, unless somebody finds a remarkable inscription. <laughs> but the things that archaeology can confirm over and again, they have. I want to end, though, with the testimony of other early Christian writers, and I mean really early, like before the Gospels, like most of the writings of Paul that were written in the 50s, or James' letter in the late 40s that regularly allude to Jesus' teachings and sayings in ways that show that without any written Gospels to refer to, they had accurate information about what he did and taught. And particularly, one such piece of evidence in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, talking about the resurrection, says, starting in verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you. A pair of verbs that in this context, when used together, normally referred to memorized oral tradition. As of first importance, or I read my footnote, hint, hint, wink, wink, read your footnotes, could also be translated at the first. It, it might mean both. Something that when I became a Christian was passed on to me as hugely important and one of the very first things I learned, kind of like what some of you, depending on your background, might have experienced as a catechism in a church. What are the most important fundamentals of the faith that a new believer needs to know? That Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And here's a list of witnesses, most of whom are still alive. You can go check it out. You don't have to just trust me. But if this is something that was passed on to Saul of Tarsus soon after his conversion, we are back around A.D. 32 or 33 within just a couple of years of Jesus' death. The atheist German historian Gerd Ludemann back in the 1990s wrote a book in which he said, the one thing that does not work historically is to say that the resurrection was a late and slowly evolving myth based on other Greco-Roman myths. This was something the disciples believed had happened and were telling people 
within at least months, if not days, of Jesus' death. You go, and why is he an atheist? Well, because he's already committed the view that dead people don't rise. <laughs> and so the best he can say is the disciples had some kind of visionary experience in which they were powerfully convinced that Jesus had. But if that presupposition is taken out of the way, then there's pretty strong evidence that this belief went right back to the very beginning. So I end with huh, three approaches to a long jump. What's that got to do with anything? Um, you probably never even thought of this possibility because it would put every joint out of your body. But imagine an athlete running down the track and before they hit the line where if you keep going, you're, you fouled whizzed to a stop and then tried to propel themselves backwards in the opposite direction to see how far they could get. <laughs> Who'd want to do that? But that's an analogy for what some scholars think Christian faith is like. Faith that flies in the face of all the momentum that the evidence has been building up. There's a second approach you can go do at the Denver Zoo, especially if you're a kid. <laughs> You know that place where there is a line and they've got the mural with all the animals and how far they can jump and you just see how far without running at all, you swing your hands and see how far you can jump and what kind of animal you're closest to. You don't get as far as if you build up some momentum. In, in, in other words, history doesn't create any momentum for or against you. History and faith, they're just separate categories of life. Just believe. <laughs> but that rightly isn't good enough for a lot of people. No, I think the, the right analogy is what we see at a track and field meet. You run down the track, you gain a lot of momentum, but at some point you do have to take a leap. There is a leap of faith that's involved, but it's a leap that the momentum has been preparing you for because time and time again where historical evidence can help us weigh in on things, it helps us in a positive direction. Faith is not a leap into the absurd. It is not a separate compartment from history. It is something that history can Help, encourage us, is something good and rational and true to do. We're going to have time tonight for all kinds of questions about that, as well as talk a little bit about the canon of Scripture. We should have a blast with that. Good, good, you got it. Um, let's see, Matt's not where he was. Oh, he's just a little bit after you're up here in these spotlights for... 40 minutes, you're not seeing anybody anymore um, very well.